What's up, guys? Before we get going today, just want to remind you the podcast brought to you by Skybox Sports Picks. Who is Skybox Sports Picks? Well, I'm glad you asked. They're the world's best gambling handicapping website. They're the inventors of the Skybox Matrix Interval, an advanced monitoring mechanism that has helped propel Skybox to the top of the sports handicapping industry. I wouldn't BS you guys on this one. Skybox knows what they're doing. There's a lot of posers out there in the handicapping world. You know, the Twitter guy that's anonymous that claims he's gone 19-2 and in his last 21 plays or something stupid like that. That's not what Skybox is. It, they, you pay them, and they deliver results. It's really that simple. I hope you cashed in on their British Open picks. They're killing it on NASCAR right now. You need to go test these guys out, particularly as we get into football season. If football is what kind of butters your bread, I would encourage you to try these guys out for a month. Maybe you hit some uh, some baseball, maybe a little bit of NASCAR beforehand. I don't know. Whatever uh, tickles your fancy. Go test these guys out before football season if you don't want to take my word for it. I promise you they're going to lead you to profit. I would tell you to go ahead and buy the full year pass because uh, it's going to pay itself back and then some. But if not, and you need a kind of a little bit of a week-by-week week or month-by-month month thing, they have week-long all-sports, week-long sports-centric, month-long all-sports, month-long sports-centric. Whatever really fits your price range, I promise you they're going to have a package that fits your uh, budget price range, whatever you want to call it. But these guys are legitimate. Please don't just go wander off in the wilderness um, kind of going off your own knowledge because I promise you, you're going to end up with a text from your bookie at Monday morning at 8 a.m. And no one wants that. If you go with Skybox, you'll actually get to text the bookie and be like, hey, pay up, pal, because Skybox just wrecked you. So check them out, skyboxsportspick.com. I promise you I wouldn't steer you guys the wrong way. They're the best in the industry, and you will benefit from it. So something to keep in mind as we get toward football season. Podcast also brought to you by LB's University Avenue across from Kroger. Had Greg on for a grill corner last week. May get him on in the next week or so as we kind of navigate through the end of this little dead period here. But check him out. Y'all know the drill. Been a longtime sponsor of uh, any sort of podcast. I was about to say the Rippy Rights podcast, but any sort of podcast I've done. Really appreciate Greg's friendship, his uh, business as well. Oxford is so lucky to have LB's like you have no idea if you haven't gone in there which i know most of you listening to the podcast definitely have you need to go check it out if you're a subscriber to the rippy rights newsletter you get a 16 ounce prime strip for 15 bucks right now and a pack of sausage for five bucks so if you subscribe rippy you get a newsletter three to five times a week from yours truly and also discounted meats i would say the latter is better than the former but uh if you want to say the opposite that would be nice but anyway Absolutely the best place in Mississippi to get meat. Lane Train Special, Keith Carter Special, all kinds of seafood, sausages. Don't go waste your time at Kroger. Uh, Greg is going to take care of you. He's going to. He's got barbecue sauces, all kinds of stuff there. Greg is going to actually meet your needs and do it with better quality, I promise you, than any other place you go. Check him out, LB's University Avenue across from Kroger. Today, we have Mailbag Friday. The People's Holiday is back. I'll answer your solo mailbag questions at the top of the pod, and then we're starting our football preseason preview content. I'll go through all of uh, all eight of Ole Miss's conference opponents, talk to another beat writer from the opposing team. You know, your typical uh, your typical uh, football season preview stuff, but we have uh, Tony Sukalis, a beat writer from the Alabama Rivals Network today. Got into a bunch of different stuff. I think you'll find the interview interesting. Uh, just a heads up, there were some storms in Tuscaloosa yesterday, so the audio for about three, four minutes of the interview 
kind of got a little choppy. Nothing too terrible, but uh, we did the best we could with that. So just a heads up. But anyway, here is Mailbag Friday. Rippy Writes with Brian Scott Rippy. Transcripts can be obtained by drinking a fifth of bourbon, ramming your head through some drywall, and then writing down every thought you have. What's up? Happy Friday. I'm Brian Scott Rippy. It is Mailbag Friday. The people's holiday is upon us again. We'll take some mailbag questions and then starting some football preview content today. Here's an original series that I'm sure no one has ever done before or will ever replicate. We're going to have an opposing beat writer on from all eight of Ole Miss's SEC opponents this year. And I figured I'd go in the order of the schedule. And so we are starting with Alabama. Tony Sukalis from Bama Insider, the Alabama Rivals Network, joins us today to talk some Crimson Tide, um, Bryce Young at quarterback, what Alabama is going to do about the three vacancies on the offensive line, and how they should pro- they're probably going to hinge on their defense a little more, kind of like some Alabama teams of old. So, uh, I would say you're, that's your typical preseason interview. I kind of bounced around on a lot of different topics. I tried to not make it the same can. Well, what's the defense like going to be this year? What about the offense? Like, tried to make it somewhat interesting. So, we'll start doing these about once a week, I would say, until the season starts. May throw in the Louisville. Some, you know, I'm not, I'm not dragging down Austin P's beat writer and asking him what, uh, what he thinks the, uh, the Govs' chances are in Oxford in early September. But we'll go through all eight conference opponents and then maybe Louisville – uh, just depending on how the timing works out heading into the season, because I do have some regular stuff planned for when the Rebels kick off fall camp, stuff like that that I think you'll be excited about. So anyway, before we get to Tony's interview, uh, I am going to answer some Mailbag Friday questions because it is the people's holiday. So I hope you're celebrating accordingly. Maybe you just walk into your boss's office, tell him you're taking the rest of the day off. If he asks why, just uh, show him the fine print. You can do whatever you want on this day. Anyway, let's just go ahead and get these started before we get to Tony's interview. Let's see. Took most of these on Twitter, so we're just going to chug right along. If you were tortured by someone, if you were to torture, okay, this is starting dark. Here we go. If you were to torture someone by playing the same song over and over again, which song are you picking? Uh, I think it's that Friday song by that chick that kind of had a moment there in the early 2010s. Maybe that was the late 2000s. I think I was in like middle school. Uh, the Friday song. I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to look this one up. We'll get. Uh, we'll get our research department on this. I can't remember what her name was, but some of you out there know exactly what I'm talking about, and can't believe I have to look this up. Uh, let's see. I just googled Friday song. Rebecca Black. Friday. That's one of the more cringeworthy songs to come out of. Uh, I would say the decade that I grew up in, per se, whether it be junior high, high school, and college, those early 2010s, late 2000s. Yeah, that was painful. That was uh, That's not one that's going to age well. And you just heard me try to play it, and I shut it off real quick. So I'm going to go with that song. That, that chick actually came up in a conversation the other day I had at work with someone. Uh, I don't ask how that happened. I don't really know. But uh, I actually looked up her net worth, and it's uh, – it's not as high as I thought. So I think, uh, I think she, uh, she had a moment there, and uh, I don't think she capitalized. I don't know if that counts as a one-hit wonder because we're talking about it in the context of torture, but uh, I don't think she did a good job of, uh, of riding the fame wave after that one. Because, you know, nowadays, you just, you, if you had a song like that, you just get a TikTok and pay people to post stupid stuff on there, and all of a sudden you're a millionaire at 20 years old eating it places in Newport Beach you shouldn't be eating at and uh, you just have all this money and no one understands how. Anyway, that was ranty, but that's probably the song I'm going with. Let's see. Keeping it moving here. 
craziest golf story that's not the recent wedding. What was the recent wedding? Oh, the Carl Malone wedding. Yeah, I, hmm, I'd have to think about this one for a second. Craziest golf story? I don't know. I had a hole in one a couple months ago. No one really wants to hear about that, but I didn't find my own ball. Some little, I was playing with a group of randoms, and uh, one of the guys brought his little kids, little kid along, and the kid found it in the hole before me as I was checking behind the green uh, to see if I'd flown it. So that that sucked. I don't think I have a crazy golf story. Oh, here's a blast from the past. When I was like nine years old, I was walking, playing golf with a, a buddy of mine who actually listened to this podcast. And uh, we were pretty young, just getting into golf. Uh, it was just the two of us walking, typical uh, like country club kid stuff. You go play nine holes of golf, go swim in the pool, come back, maybe play nine more, call it a day in the summer. Um, we were playing on like a fourth hole and he hit it over by a cart path. And he was like up against the cart path where the cart path was like above where his ball was sitting on the hard pan. And of course, we're nine years old. We're not expecting lies. This kid just pulls out an iron and takes a whack at it. Well, the ball ricochets perfectly between the ground and the elevated part cat, cart path that I swear to God this is true. hits him directly between the eyes and knocks him out cold. So, like, I'm running back into the pro shop yelling that my buddy's dead, which he was not. He was just very much concussed. And uh, they had to, like, send all this personnel out there, uh, kind of wake the kid up, take him through concussion protocols, had a couple black eyes. Uh, I don't think I made the situation much better by declaring his, uh, his mortality in the pro shop. But, uh, yeah, that was a pretty crazy story. I probably have a better one that I just couldn't think of. I should probably have spent more time researching that. But, anyway, so keeping it moving here. You are a Civil War general. Would you rather have a T-Rex or a tank? Yes, yeah, so I had to follow up on this one. I didn't know if a T-Rex was some sort of 19th century, uh, century military lingo that I was not catching on about. I, uh, I'm not a Civil War buff by any means, but I do find the history interesting, and I uh, T-Rex is not something that's come up uh, in anything I've read. So uh, I'm guessing you're talking about the animal here. I don't really know what's up with the listeners and, and the T-Rexes on this podcast. This is like the third Mailbag Friday in a row we've had a question uh, involving some sort of prehistoric animal. Most of the time, the T-Rex. So uh, not really sure what, what's happening there. Um, but I'm probably going to go with the tank just because, um, you know, I, I don't know if Ulysses S. Grant and his team of dudes – uh, ripping muskets around is going to have too much trouble with uh, a T-Rex because you put, I imagine you put five, six musket balls inside a T-Rex. That thing's probably keeling over. And then, you know, you use his, his scales and teeth and stuff as supplies and weapons. Whereas uh, a musket ball, like spoiler alert, probably not doing anything to a tank. And um, I imagine if you rolled a tank out in a civil war battlefield, everyone's going to look at you like you just discovered fire and rightfully so because I don't think they had tanks back then. So uh, the way, uh, the way war was fought back then, I think blowing up dudes with tanks, you could probably take a couple hundred dudes out, uh, you know, with two, three shots. So I'm probably going with the tank there. Um, and I am glad I was not a civil war general because that just sounds awful, but yeah, probably go with the tank over the dinosaur. So great question. Let's see. I'm stuck in traffic at almost midnight. Advice on entertaining yourself in a traffic jam standstill. Um, well, there's a lot of things you could do. You could pop in this, uh, the Rippy Rights podcast. It's this left-handed kid with the logo of a right hand. Uh, he talks on a podcast that's named about writing. So you could probably pop that one in. That'll probably help you pass the time. May make the traffic jam worse. Who's to say? I don't know. You submitted a question. Um, you can make faces at the people next to you. 
Uh, I've done, I've pulled that card before. Um, you could just enter a staring contest at the guy next to you, kind of an alpha move. If someone particularly is next to you, maybe you had a little uh, road rage beef with them in the past, just turn and stare at them. Make them blink first. Let them know what you're about. So there's a couple options for you. Rank the college towns in the SEC if Oklahoma and Texas join the conference. Ooh. I'm not sure it changes much. And uh, at the at the risk of, uh, of angering the listeners and, and going full sacrilege mode, I am actually going to put Athens, Georgia 1, Oxford 2. Um, maybe it's just because I grew up going to Oxford. I'm used to it. I'm well aware of what a special place it is. I think I've probably uh, appreciated that more since I've moved off because, uh, you know, I'd go off for like a week or two or something. I never really like, quote, unquote, missed Oxford. But uh, And I like it out here in the DFW area. But I, when you move away, you certainly miss it. So that's not lost on me. Maybe I'm just uh, – a little bit more used to it, but I took five or six Athens trips in college. That place is unbelievable. Um, I'm not even sure I could survive going to college there because um, it's the price of everything too. They don't really do covers. Like every beer is like three, four bucks and like the wells are like five or six. They're not hammering you over the head with that. And not that we condone underage drinking on this podcast, but if you are not quite 21 yet, um, you could walk up to any of those places and show a hotel room key. And they're like, yeah, just, just keep the line rolling. Let's keep this flowing in and out, in and out. They, they don't care is, uh, is my point. So I'm going to Athens 1, Oxford 2. Um, maybe I'm a little bit biased with this one, but I really enjoy Fayetteville, Arkansas. Um, shout out Neil. I'm sure he'll love that answer. But uh, I really do. If it wasn't so far away, I probably would have made more trips to it. And honestly, um, particularly from like a – so Fayetteville from Oxford, like I always thought about this from like a working perspective. It was just far enough away to be a pain in the ass because it's not really far enough to fly, um, really. I mean, you could, but it, you're not saving a ton of time and it's not the easiest place to get into. So it's, it's just long enough to be a pain in the ass drive. It's like six hours, I think. And one of the things that made that easier versus driving to like, I don't know, uh, Columbia, Missouri, which sucked, was when you got there, you really enjoyed it. I like Dixon Street, everything. Like they have a lot of cool restaurant options. The dough's there is really good. A couple of rooftop bars that I really enjoyed. Taco Bell Cantina, that's got to be a plus. So they have one of the few Taco Bell Cantinas in the world, which means it has alcohol. So uh, these college kids come in pretty busted up wanting uh, a gordita or something, and they can, just, they can just keep on with their night. A lot of fights, a lot of puking in that place, I would imagine. But uh, that's a power move. Just imagine in the middle of the square you had a Taco Bell. So that one that's right off the square down University, imagine that smack dab the middle of the square. And they've got booze. Um, there's probably some people that would really not enjoy that. But uh, if you're in the mix, the, uh, the, the drunk tank of the restaurant rather than the drunk tank of the uh, local facility uh, that you don't want to end up at, if you're in that mix late at night, kind of like chicken on a stick gets sometimes, um, having a margarita while you wait for your chicken on a stick, think of it that way. That's a, a plus. So I'm going uh, Fayetteville 3. Um, I guess I'll go Tuscaloosa 4. Um, Tuscaloosa never really like stood out for me, but it's a cool college town, right? You've got the strip. I think is what they call it. If I'm not mistaken, a couple cool rooftop bars, uh, shout out to the bear trap. Really enjoyed that place. Um, I think they have one called rounders. I get that the one in Starkville confused, which is like drifters, but, uh, not a bad place at all. So I'll go Tuscaloosa five. Where does that leave me? Um, oh, I, I actually did this too low. This is if Texas and OU join the SEC. Retroactive ranking. We're going to put Austin behind – yeah, we're going to put Austin behind Fayetteville. I've only done Austin twice, and I don't know, like, what the college town vibe is it. 
it's, it's a cool city. I really enjoy going there, have some friends visit it a couple of times. I don't know what it's like as a college town. I imagine it's pretty cool. So, uh, but I'll keep my Fayetteville bias and I'll go Austin four, Alabama five. So we've got that in there. I've never done Norman, so it's probably going to suffer in the rankings. Heard it's okay. Heard it's pretty cool. Um, so we'll go ahead and actually put that six. Uh, it's close to Oklahoma City. Uh, I've heard it's fine. I went to Stillwater one time. That place was not cool. I didn't enjoy that. So we'll go Norman six just because I heard it's pretty cool. And just because I don't love any of the other options. Uh, seven, I'm actually going to go hmm. Columbia. It's going to be close between – we're going to go Columbia, South Carolina. Really enjoyed that place. Had more of a city vibe, I guess. Uh, but the stuff around the arena, particularly when Ole Miss played there for the NCAA basketball tournament in 2019, I guess that was, was pretty cool. I enjoyed that. And then we'll go Fayetteville, Kentucky next. Um, again, larger, much larger city than I thought it would be, but some cool uh, – some cool places to drink. I've only done Lexington twice, so my my knowledge base here is a little little slim, but uh, we'll go with that. And then eight, we'll go LSU, Baton Rouge. Um, I'm, Baton Rouge is not my favorite place. Uh, you know, there's right ways and wrong ways to do it in terms of like, look, if you're just going out both nights in Tigerland and you're standing in those glorified state fair tents while everyone's just sloshed around you, you're probably going to have a little bit different experience than maybe if you go, you know, go get a table at one of those downtown bars or whatever. It's a much different experience. So, but from a college experience, uh, Tigerland's not, not, not my favorite place in the world. I'm sure there's other places LSU students go, but a decent enough college town. So that's probably a little low on the list, but just not my favorite. So we'll go eight, um, nine, I guess we'll throw in Nashville. I love Nashville as a city. I don't know what it's like as a college town. That's why it's suffering in the rankings here. I'm looking through a college town lens at this. So we'll go, Vanderbilt nine and then I guess we'll just start throwing on the ones I've, I've never really been to I've been to Knoxville once but never done it so we'll go 10 uh Gainesville driven through there never really been there 11 um what else are we missing I'll probably put Columbia Missouri too low um we'll, we'll we'll retroactively put that nine maybe bump everyone else down a spot we'll put that right behind Nashville I actually like Columbia Missouri it's not like an SEC like town but it's certainly like a cool enough town they've got a couple of cool places to eat and, uh, you know, for a school that they say doesn't care as much and doesn't really fit the SEC footprint in football, that game there in 2019, they had a pretty good team. I know they ended up firing the coach that year, Barry Odom. But at the time, they weren't bad. They had Kelly Bryant at quarterback. Uh, it was a packed house on a cool, like crisp fall Saturday night, and it certainly felt SEC-ish that night. I know that's not really the norm there, but um, I actually enjoyed Columbia, Missouri than most would think. So we're, we've got three left. I'm going to go – College Station, 12, I guess. Just didn't enjoy that place. It seemed like a larger Starkville, Starkville 13. And then uh, I'm missing one, or maybe I just screwed up the math because it's 6.30 in the morning and I'm not thinking clearly. But uh, whatever one I missed, I uh, just got – oh, Auburn. No, yeah, we could throw that somewhere in the Columbia range. So the last two, I'm going to go College Station, 13, Starkville, 14. We'll go Gainesville, 12. We'll go – uh, yeah, we'll go Auburn 11, Missouri 10, South Carolina 9, Nashville 8. There's my rankings. That was a terrible list. Best golf course you've played in the Dallas-Fort Worth area so far, and it can't be Irving Golf Club because you made a hole-in-one. Fair point. I wasn't going to say that one anyway. Um, you know, One of the things I've been surprised about since moving to the Dallas-Fort Worth area is the public golf 
is nuts. And I actually looked this up the other day because I thought about writing about it and I hadn't decided what I want to do with that yet. But uh, I'm going to do something with it, whether it be the newsletter or maybe a separate story. Um, The public golf here is nuts. I mean, you have 100 public courses in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, probably within a 30-mile, 40-mile radius, however you want to deem the Dallas-Fort Worth area, whatever like line you want to draw around is uh, the borders of it per se. Um, is incredible. I mean, I, I'm still trying new courses every week. I'm going to one I haven't been to on Saturday called Golf Club of Dallas. Um, but a lot of cool city courses. Stevens Park's a really cool one. I played Cedar Crest the other weekend. 40 bucks. You can uh, ride it for 40 bucks. And uh, Ben Hogan won the 1927 PGA Championship there. Uh, Reminds you of an old-fashioned country club. Um, really cool golf course. A lot of history there. There's a lot of places like that out there, out here. As far as my favorite I mean, it's hard to go. I mean, the Texas Rangers golf course across the street for me, really nice. I've really enjoyed that. But like, if you want to go mix of like nice course versus one with some character, I think can't go wrong with Stevens Park. City course, square greens. Uh, it's short, some cool hole designs. Uh, there's a couple of tee boxes where you can see the Dallas skyline in the background, a couple of cool views. So I, I guess Stevens Park it might be my favorite. I was trying to think of a cooler answer. I've gone out to Frisco and done the tribute, uh, the kind of uh, – the replica of all the famous Lynx holes. Uh, done that. Haven't done Old American across the street where they have the LPGA Tour event. But I really enjoyed that. I really, really enjoyed Cedar Crest. Irving Golf Club was cool. Um, I've, I've heard Grapevine Country Club or Grapevine Golf Club, I guess it would be, is a cool one. So uh, I really only have public knowledge and I'm still learning uh, as I go because there's still so many courses I haven't tried. But those are a few. So I'll, I'll settle my answer at Stevens Park. But ton of great golf courses out here. I uh, I, I love it. It's uh, it's definitely probably the biggest plus to moving out here. I actually have a 36-hole day Saturday um, just because I had two groups that wanted to play, one in the morning, one in the afternoon, two different courses. Um, so I don't think you could really do that in North Mississippi, I guess is my point, unless you wanted to go like university course to Mallard. But is that worth the drive in the heat? Anyway, um, hope Mississippi's public golf kind of kind of catches up in the next couple of years. I, you know, the, the refuge course being renovated was big, right, by the airport in Jackson. So uh, I need to check that one out. Let's see. A buddy of mine, Michael Portner, checking in here. Top five Olympic sports to watch. Olympics doesn't do it for me. I don't know if that's a controversial take. I don't know if that's going to get someone to DM me later and be like, what are you talking about? Um, I kind of like the Winter Olympics more because it's like, Look, it's a bunch of sports that I don't know anything about. So if you add snow to the mix, I'm probably a little more locked into the television than I am just someplace in the summer where it looks like it's 90-something degrees. So, uh, you know, my brain's pretty simple to please. So if it's a bunch of sports that I don't understand the rules, throw some snow into the mix or, you know, some sort of weapons or something like curling. I know it's not snowing on curling, but you're on ice. Uh, You got dudes doing stuff you don't really understand, and it's kind of electric. The Summer Olympics don't do it as much for me, but if you want to make me rank them, I guess I'll go uh, – in terms of likelihood to watch, I'll go golf because uh, I'll, go, I'll definitely watch the Olympic golf. Even though I don't really understand golf's place in the Olympics, like I don't really know the significance yet because it's so new. So I'll go golf one. Um, I guess hoops two. I'm not a huge international hoops guy, but uh, I, I don't like the trend we're going now where just anyone's kind of filling in the U.S. Olympic team and these guys are uh, kind of uh, too good or don't want to risk injury to play. I do think it's kind of important and a cool opportunity to rep- represent your country and uh, kind of flex that we're the best in the world at something because at full strength, no one is beating the United States in basketball. Um, but I don't like that trend, even though I'm not as locked into to Olympic basketball. So I'll, I'll throw that too. Um, 
I'll go. I got a little help here from another buddy of ours here that answered for me. I, I do. Volleyball is pretty cool. I'll go that three, gymnastics four, and swimming five. Uh, the track events don't do it as much for me. The sprinting's kind of cool. Um, but I find the gymnastics wild, how athletic uh, those people are. And, like, what, what they do to themselves, like, through the air is something that really just kind of defies physics. So that's always cool to watch. And then, I don't know, I like volleyball. Not going to – look, you're not going to catch me, like, you know, DVR in the, the beach and the beach and hardcourt volleyball. But if it's on, I'll probably watch. Uh, water polo was an honorable mention here. Um, sure. I, I, I couldn't – if you spike someone in the face and they gave you a point of water polo, I'd be like, sure, that makes sense. I, I don't know a single rule about that. So anyway, let's see. Moving along here, moving along. Does Texas joining the SEC move the needle either direction on Arch's recruitment? It's not a bad question. I don't think so. Um, you know, maybe is it a little bit of a plus that the kid really wanted to go to Texas and he was torn between just, say, Texas and Ole Miss? And, you know, now he can go to, you know, but we don't know anything about this yet. And I'll get into this. I think we had another question about it here in a minute. I'll get into this in a second, but like, we don't know anything about it. And like, you know, they're the big 12's contract or whatever, whatever legislation that would allow Texas and Oklahoma to leave. I read is not up until 2025. And I imagine uh, from the little I read on it, the only way to finagle your way around that would be some pretty serious legal maneuvering which would take, you know, I would imagine a year or two anyway. Maybe I'm wrong, and in 14 months, te Texas and Oklahoma are, are on Ole Miss's SEC schedule. Maybe I, I don't necessarily see that for 2021, but I'm also speaking from a place of ignorance because this is, this is kind of outside of the realm of the stuff I cover. I don't have any, like, inside intel on this. But I don't see this happening in the next two-ish years if it does happen. Uh, you know, like – like I keep mentioning that, that the legislation says they can't move even if they want to till 2025. So I think there's so many working parts in place. I don't think this is going to move the needle on Arch's recruitment. If Arch was still in eighth grade and, you know, you had the, you know, people for whatever reason following kids, you know, 14 year old kids and what they're leaning recruiting wise, which I still find is a weird concept, but whatever nature of the beast, not the point, you know, if he was still three, four years away from school, then sure, that certainly, that certainly would maybe affect things a little more. But I just don't think it affects Arch from a timing perspective. But even if they were in the Big 12 next year, would that be a tiebreaker? Sure. Would it be you know, a little bit of a, a notch on Texas's belt? Yes. But do it, would I think it would have changed a ton anyway? No. But that's why Rebel Grove hires Zach Barry and not me. <laughs> to cover recruiting, that is. Let's see. Keeping it going. Oh, here's a good one. I wanted to get to this one. If you're Ole Miss and State, do you really want Texas and Oklahoma to join the SEC? Sure, it's more money, but it also adds more L's to your schedule each season. If they join, what are your thoughts on how you would handle division realignment within the league? Well, there's a lot to unpack here, and I, everyone's already kind of had their division realignment take. Look, whatever idea you've seen on the internet in the last couple of days, whether it's a pod or the division thing, cool, thumbs up to me. I don't know how they'll handle it. Um, I, I don't necessarily think that's necessarily – the point here, and I gave a shortened version of my answer to you on Twitter yesterday just because I thought it was a good question, even though I don't really agree with your thinking. Um, so I don't know if you noticed, but like Ole Miss beat Texas the last time they, they played. And I, I'm, not, I'm not going with, well, they beat them in 2013. They could beat them in 2020. I'm not doing that. That's, that's incredibly stupid. That has, A does not correlate to B there. That's not what I'm getting at. But like, I guess what I'm getting at is, is over the last, particularly you know, since Texas's last appearance in the national title game, 
yes, Texas has been more consistent as a program all this, but in terms of like elite level, they haven't spent a lot of time on different stratospheres, if that makes sense. And, you know, like I said, all, kind of an up and coming Ole Miss team in 2013 went out to Austin and beat a decent Texas team. I know that was Mac Brown kind of on the way out. Um, pretty good. And I know that Texas got the better of Ole Miss and Oxford and Freeze's first year. But I guess what I'm getting at, particularly with the state of Ole Miss's program right now and kind of if Lane continues on the trajectory he's on, I don't think that's an automatic loss. Now, Oklahoma, the way they've recruited under Lincoln Riley, a little bit of a different story. Do you want Oklahoma on your schedule every year? Um, not this version of them, but one, I'm kind of interested to see how that – that style of offense translates when the speed's a little better in the Southeastern Conference. And two, um, you know, Oklahoma's had some good underrated defenses through the years, and I think they've probably gotten a little bit of a uh, stereotypical rap because of the league they play in. But it's not as consistent. Oklahoma's also had some really bad ones. Uh, you know, they lost in a shootout to Georgia a couple years ago uh, in a hell of a Rose Bowl college football semifinal. And so, um, you know, in an effort to not get too ranty, I don't think that's necessarily automatic losses to your schedule, particularly with the way Texas has been for almost almost two decades now. I guess it's getting on 15 years uh, or so. Um, you know, they, they is, there's a reason people facetiously ask, "Is Texas back?" Like they haven't been very good. They're on their you know, their third coach in the last eight nine years, whatever the whatever it is. So I, I don't necessarily agree with that line of thinking. And the second part of that is, I don't know what the realignment would look like per se, but any sort of thing that would prompt realignment to get Ole Miss and State out of playing Alabama and Auburn and LSU every single year, even if you could just play the two of the three, if you could get Alabama out of there, uh, you know, you preferably like to get, I know Auburn's in a little bit of a weird place, new head coach, but just historically, you, you don't want to be playing those guys every year. So if, if, if Ole Miss and State get it, could get it to where, you know, they're in a division and I'm just making up numbers here, so don't well actually me after, but if you could get the two Mississippi schools, that's two, Arkansas three, LSU four, A&M five, Texas seven, Missouri or Oklahoma picket for eight. And then you have the other eight division, like the other eight on the other side as well. That's a win. Cause guess what? Guess who's not in there? Alabama or Auburn. Um, maybe there is some sort of realignment where they keep Ole Miss and Alabama and Auburn's uh, division. And it kind of renders all this moot. But I guess what I'm getting at is I don't know if the, the actual realignment matters as much, but just anything that could prompt getting Ole Miss out of the gauntlet and state for that matter too, that is the SEC West is something I think they are in favor of. And if you can get them out of playing Alabama and Auburn each year and the conference makes more money and your revenue checks increases, I, I don't see why you would be against that. I, I Someone present me the argument of why Ole Miss should not want Texas and Oklahoma in the uh in the conference aside from well they're better programs well no shit but like texas hasn't been consistently and you know it's not like Ole Miss is knocking on the doorstep of atlanta very consistently anyway and so um do i think Ole Miss would have a better shot at making the sec championship with oklahoma in their division instead of alabama uh i'm gonna say absolutely yes so i think it's something they should be in favor of as far as realignment i kind of gave you what i thought the west might look like so just take the other eight teams and that's the east if you want to call it that um, you know, consider any sort of change. I don't really know. I had to put more thought into the, into the best realignment. But like anything in 2021, we've gotten so ahead of ourselves. I do think this is happening, I guess. I should say that. Like, you know, when, this, when a story leaks like this, the forces have already been put into motion. And it's either being leaked by the opposing party, which here seems like Texas A&M and a couple others, to try to stop it and kind of quell it. Or it's being linked, leaked to generate more momentum to kind of, gain public favor you don't really need public favor here because you're having to get 11 of 14 yes votes from the sec member institutions 
But I guess what I'm saying is I do think this is happening, but we're also getting so far ahead of ourselves because this could also be stopped. There, there could be roadblocks. I mean, Ross Bjork showed up in Hoover at SEC media days the other day, which kind of an odd move. Maybe he was just there to kind of spectate whatever. But I find it interesting that he just happened to be there. This story drops. He acted shocked by it. Maybe he was shocked. Maybe I'm just maybe putting the tinfoil hat on. But then, like, openly lobbies against this happening. And I don't necessarily blame Ross. I know the, whatever you may think of him and his time at Ole Miss, I get – like, that's what his, his school wants. His school – they want to be the only SEC school in Texas. So I don't blame him for publicly lobbying against it at all. Um, I just kind of find it interesting. And just to point out there – you know, there's a lot of, of things that have to happen and hurdles to be completed before this happens. So I need to put a little more thought into the realignment aspect of it in terms of like what the divisions would look like. But I do think it's something Ole Miss and State should be in favor of because, uh, no offense, outside of State kind of having a, a fairly lucky run in 99, um, this whole system is not working out for them in terms of getting into Atlanta and winning the SEC championship. So anyway... Um, that's kind of my answer on that. And the last thing I'll add on that, if you get good, like Ole Miss and State got in 2013, 14, 15, um, I don't think you're fearing Texas and Oklahoma, no matter what they look like. Ole Miss didn't fear Alabama, and that's the height of the greatest dynasty that we've ever had. So, you know, you've seen it's possible, um, and you'd probably rather have, uh, you know, Lincoln Riley, and I think he's a good coach, so that doesn't sound great, and Steve Sarkeesian in your division rather than Nick Saban. Call me crazy. Anyway, good question, though. I appreciate the thought. Let's see. I realize this is overly broad out. Overly broad. Oh, sorry. I can't read this morning. I realize this is overly broad, but what the hell is going on with college football? Name, image, and likeness, playoff expansion, and now potentially conference expansion. These seem like mostly pipe dream discussions we've had for a year, but now they all seem to happen at once. Is that a coincidence? No, I think it's a domino effect. I think this whole name, image, and likeness thing, building momentum, uh, kind of induced the conference expansion because now with this, this the, the whole money scale and I'm not a finance guy it might actually be interesting to get a finance guy on the podcast to try to like forecast like revenue splits and how that's going to look differently whether it's among schools or athletes or whatever and how all this is changing with the name image and likeness stuff I know name image and likeness doesn't directly revenue splits I guess what I'm saying is get an expert that talks about money for a living to talk about the different scale of money we're about to be discussing in college sports, particularly college football. So I think that's a driving force, particularly behind the uh, conference realignment, conference expansion, because in credit to Texas and OU, and I'm, I'm sure this didn't, I'm sure NIL didn't go into effect and they're like, oh, let, let's get the ball rolling on this. I'm sure this had been in the works for longer, but someone was going to capitalize on this disruption um, because this, the market is certainly disrupted right now, whether you're just talking about name, image, and likeness or kind of the landscape of college football. Anytime you have disruption, someone's going to come out better. And you can kind of – there are factors you can control to come out better. And I think that's what Texas and Oklahoma are doing by, you know, wanting to join the SEC and making that known. Um, and I think this is where the SEC benefits from being the most desirable brand. You know, I find some of the conference pride stuff kind of funny sometimes where people root for their conference and bowl games and all that. I don't really get that aspect of it. But the, the meathead Danny Cannell argument of who's the best conference – um, if, if you ever needed any sort of evidence uh, as to what the, actually the answer was, and everyone knew it was the SEC, any rational talking head knew the SEC had better football than everyone else consistently, uh, more people drafted, name the metric you want, name more teams in the playoff, more speed, whatever you want, and as better baseball than a lot of people, and in some cases as good a basketball as anyone, but that's neither here nor there.
this is all the evidence you need. That argument should be put to bed because you don't see Alabama and Auburn saying, all right, let's take our, our, let's take our, what we have now and make it better and move to the big 12. Uh, you don't see anyone, you know, moving to the ACC. Like it, it, it's at, the SEC is where everyone wants to be in a sim- to put it in a simplistic way. And uh, congrats to that. I give you, you're, you are the best conference, I guess. And so that's kind of the benefit of being the most desirable brand, even though some people wouldn't want to admit that sometimes. I think this, this kind of puts that argument to bed because two of the biggest brands in college football are chomping at the bit to get in the Southeastern Conference. So anyway, I think it's kind of a domino effect. Uh, college football playoff expansion, I'm not sure is necessarily tied to this in general, but this is all driven by money. Why does Texas and Oklahoma want to do the SEC? more money why is name image and likeness happening so the players can get more money why is college football playoff expansion happening more money because more games equals more money equals more revenue which equals more opportunities for these teams to play on tv and sign gigantic tv deals all of this is driven by more money why this is all happening at once i think the nil and the conference realignment with texas and ou is linked i don't necessarily think the playoff expansion is linked but I think we're just realizing that we've done this a dumb way for a long time and there's more money to be made by everyone involved. And so once that's, that's kind of the consensus opinion, uh, you know, things move faster than you think because people like more money and more money is kind of a paramount in everything and it drives all of these conversations. So I think, you know, I guess the better question is why it took so long to realize this is the better way. I, I don't really know the answer to that. But I think once we've now kind of collectively realized that Hey, fourteen playoff, kind of stupid. Just like the BCS was kind of stupid. Uh, let's let's play more games for more money and give more teams opportunities. You know, we have five Power Five conferences and decided on a fourteen playoff. That doesn't seem to make a ton of sense. You know, even if you're against expansion and don't think there's enough teams, whatever. Like they don't skip the wild card round in the NFL because they don't think the the wild card team has a chance to beat the Patriots or whatever. Uh, even though my Titans did in the dynasty a couple years ago. You get my point. That shouldn't you know that shouldn't prevent a team from having an opportunity to play if they go 11 and one or something like that, whether you think they deserved it or not. But anyway, all this is driven by money. And I think we we're all just collectively realizing this is kind of stupid the way we've been doing this. Let's do it smarter. Are you coming to the Charleston classic? If so, do you want to grab a beer? I think that's the basketball tournament. Sure, man. I, that's a long way off. Don't live close, but if I make it there, uh, sure. Just hold me to that. We can go drink a beer. Do I have to call you car salesman Rippy now? Uh, glad you brought this up. Yeah, the, the whole Dion thing, Nick Suss. Uh, I won't spend a ton of time on this. I wrote about this in the newsletter. I appreciate the humor and the question. Yeah, I found this dumb. I've never called a coach I've covered in my entire life coach. He doesn't coach me in anything. Until you know, Kiffin starts telling me to hit a lap or something, I'm probably going to stick with Lane, um, even though I don't really talk to him as much because I'm not full-time anymore. But like, I never – it's not a sign of disrespect. And the, the, the clown on the internet saying – He's earned that title. You should respect him. Has never been to a press conference and has no idea what he's talking about. If you want to call a coach coach in a press conference, cool. You're not any less of a reporter for it or, or media personality. I'm not knocking you for doing it. But there is a stereotype with dudes that do call them coach, and there's not many of them. It's usually kind of a uh, try-hard TV guy or the media guy that shows up uh, to the game in the school's clothing, whatever you want to read into that. So – there's kind of a stereotype that comes with it. I don't care. You can call him whatever you want, but he's not my coach. Like, I'm not going to be – I'm not calling him coach. I find that weird. Uh, I mean, and no one's ever cared. Mandy Kennedy, Kermit, uh, Mike Bianco doesn't even like me, and he doesn't care. Like, he's never been like, call me coach, which I'm kind of surprised, and we shouldn't let that thought fester in his head. He might get some ideas. But uh, I just found that weird. I think it was a publicity stunt. 
Um, Sus calling him Dion a second time after he asked him not to was probably a little provocative, but at the same time, it was hilarious and uh, good for him for standing his ground. But if you're out there beating the drum for all coaches should be called coach, um, show me some sort of higher education documentation and I might, I might come around to the idea. But, like, I'm not calling him coach. He doesn't coach me in anything. That's, that's weird. I can't believe we're having this discussion. I can't believe that became a talking point. Um, so, anyway, that's my answer on that. But, yes, you can call me salesman Rippy, uh, blogger Rippy, podcaster Rippy, uh, whatever you want to call me. I agree, salesman. Uh, I will go by anything, but don't call me Brian. Uh, that, don't do that. You wouldn't call Nick Saban Brian. Draft your top five sandwiches. Anything goes. Okay. Uh, Nukes Q, one, probably my favorite sandwich uh, I've had just about anywhere. Uh, two, the beach ham and cheese or beach peanut butter and jelly. I'm just going to go beach sandwich in general. The sandwich you make, slit stick in a uh, Ziploc bag and munch on on the beach is absolutely a different breed of sandwich. Absolutely one of the best ones out there. That's two. Uh, three, I'm going to go with pulled pork sandwich. I'm going to go with Moe's Barbecue. They've had one of the best pulled pork sandwiches I've ever had. Alabama style. Love that one. This is off the top of my head. Uh, the Obies kicking chicken sandwich four. We'll go with that one. Really enjoyed that one. Five. Hmm. I don't know. I can't think of a fifth sandwich right now. We're just going to go with the classic PB and J, uh, crust, uh, cr crunchy peanut butter. I'm a crunchy peanut butter guy. So we'll go with classic peanut butter and jelly there. There's five sandwiches. I didn't put a ton of thought into that. If you could tell Pat Williams checking in. How many feet of putts were made back in the Sunday round of the Mossy Oak Four Man a few years ago? Oh, glad we're checking in on this. I'd forgotten about this. More than I can count. We won our flight, if I'm not mistaken. Made up for the uh, – made up for the uh, – I remember the first day being pretty frustrated, not making any putts. Got some to roll the second day. Won our flight. I'm actually wearing one of the shirts from it as we speak uh, that I burned in the pro shop. Uh, we were borderline sandbagging, I remember. Not trying intentionally, but we missed so many putts the first day. It kind of all came down the second day. One thing I remember from that day, here's a golf tip. Someone asked for a golf tip uh, in one of the last mailbags that I didn't get to. Um, here's a tip. We played with a group that day that uh, we asked to play some music on one of those tiny little speakers, and uh, it was kind of a serious group, older gentlemen, a couple spouses in there as well, a group of four. I think they were husband and wives. Uh, we're like, no, actually, don't, don't put that music on. Uh, it messes up my backswing. Don't be that guy on the golf course. If there's alcohol involved in your golf round, don't be the guy that says, hey, can you turn off the music? Just don't. Look, it's one thing if, you know, a bunch of dudes are blasted daft punk and shaking the golf cart that you can hear them four holes over, but a little Tom Petty in the background just to kind of kill the, uh, you know, the, the dead noise in between shots or whatever, don't be that guy. It's not messing you up. If you have a handicap above like a five, we'll go seven to be safe you can't complain about music that is not why you hit a bad shot so don't be that guy that's my one advice to you um out there so anyway glad you checked that in though i'd forgotten about that let's see keeping it moving here i want to make sure i hit most of these i can't get to all of them today oh man uh, ian moon check it in have you ever woken up naked after blacking out drunk and what was the story behind it um Check in with me later. This guy has an account that uh, zero followers, zero following. He might have made this just to ask this question. Uh, so I don't know what he's referring to, but uh, I'm going to plead the fifth there because my mom listens to this podcast sometimes. Maybe at a later date, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll throw that question back in the mix. What a start to the Friday. This guy, and it is the spirit of Mailback Friday. He's asking about waking up naked somewhere. So uh, I'm not mad at it, but I don't know if I'm, I'm diving into that one today. 
let's see. Making sure I answered all of these. Yes. One more. Oh, do if every head coach in SEC was an alcohol, who would that be? Uh, I haven't put any thought into this. This is probably one I should have prepped and saved, but I actually didn't see this question when I was running through them the first time. So uh, we'll just rip through this real quick. Um, I'm going to go – well, Ed Orgeron, easy one. Milwaukee's best light. You drink that stuff if like you swallowed some gravel. Probably can't understand what you're saying. Um, so we'll go with that. Um, Sam Pittman seems like a natural light guy. Uh, just kind of good old down-to-earth. Like, hey, man, you know this 12-pack of Coors Light's only like four bucks more? No, he's cool with the natty can uh, just wherever he goes. Probably drinking that shit at room temperature. You know, We all know that guy. Just doesn't care. Prefers the natty. Uh, just a real, real salt-of-the-earth type of dude. Um, let's see. Dan Mullen, vodka martini, and he probably complained about how many olives were in there. Let's see. Mike Leach. Mike Leach is the daiquiri guy where you don't know quite what's in there, and it might not just have been alcohol. Um, he starts saying stuff about pirates and and combat warfare, and you're only three drinks in, and you're like, dude, we haven't even gone to the show yet. What 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 did this guy do? Did he? Did, did he take what we had in store already later for him at the show? So that's – Mike Leach is the, the daiquiri drink that you, you don't really know what, 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 what that guy's about or what's going on in between the ears with him, but you know something. That, whatever's in there, you don't want it because you still have a long night ahead. Let's see. Lane Kiffin. I'm going to go with just a decent, decent bourbon. I don't know. He seems relatable enough, but also he trimmed some weight, sharp-looking dude. Um, Little, little more tricky on the internet uh, than he is in real life in terms of uh, to, to figure out. So uh, I'll just go with your, your solid, just middle, middle class, upper-ish self bourbon. I'm not a bourbon snob. Uh, that, I'll refer to Chase Parham on that one. Um, but I'm going to go with that for Lane. So nothing too crazy. Um, Shane Beamer, I don't know enough about him, so I will just assign him vodka. Whatever. Shane Beamer, vodka guy. Eli Drinkowitz. I'm going to go um, – lower tier ish whiskey but one of those things where after three of them you know your boy's not coming back because he kind of got a little bit uh savage here at the media day press conference i bet Elijah drinkowitz gets four or five whiskeys in and is probably wanting to text dan mullen just to let him know hey man i uh, i think you're just a little baby back filling whatever uh you know kind of halfway playing but wanting him to know he alphas him he, he seems like he's got a little bit of that in him so uh maybe a little bit of an aggressive drunk so i'm gonna go uh whiskey on the rocks for him, but uh, maybe like a, maybe like a uh, Jack Daniels. So not totally upper shelf, but uh, you don't really, you don't really know what he's getting into after about four of them. Uh, who am I missing? Jimbo Fisher? Uh, hell, I don't know. Uh, Jimbo's probably the guy that's like not pacing himself very well. He talks very fast. A lot of injury. I'll go vodka Red Bull because I think that man drinks a ton of it before he steps on a microphone and speaks. Uh, Kirby Smart, Coors Light. Just seems like a guy that drinks a shit ton of Coors Light. And I drink Coors Light, so I'm not necessarily knocking him. But, uh, you know, throw him at a KA party with that visor he wears. And uh, if you can hide the receding hairline, he's probably not sticking out as the old guy there uh, for at least 15 minutes. So Coors Light just seems like a solid Coors Light long neck guy. Um, who have I missed? Uh, Kentucky's coach, Stoops. I don't know. Um We'll go gin and tonic, kind of an underrated drink, but you never think about it, like to order it. At least I don't. But when you get one, you're like, oh, this is pretty good. Moscow Mule could fall into that category. Don't order it often, but it's when you have it, you're like, oh, this is pretty good. Uh, it kind of reminds me of Kentucky's football program. Uh, Josh 
hypo uh, fireball shot because someone ordered it for the table. No one really wanted it, but you're all going to take it anyway because it's all in good fun. I feel like that's where Tennessee's at with their football program. Hell, it can't be worse than what Pruitt left us. We didn't necessarily want this guy, but he's, here's what we have at the table. We're going to take this and uh, down it. Um, Clark Lee at Vanderbilt. Uh, Everclear, just because you, you probably need some to get through that. I think that's everyone. If I miss someone, sorry. Oh, Brian Hart. Oh, Nick Saban. Uh, the guy that drinks uh, water but says it's a vodka water and is really just uh, judging everyone at the table without uh, letting him know. We all know that person out there. Uh, Brian Harson. How? I don't know. He came from out west. We'll go Coors Banquet because I don't know anything else about the man other than he coached at Boise State. So that's it. I think that was all the mailbag questions we had. I've got to run. I've got to go to the uh, day job, grease salesman job. Um, so we will reconvene next Friday. Got a couple late submissions that I roll into next week, but, uh, I appreciate the time as always. Uh, there will be no outro to this podcast. I'm not the best at putting an outro, uh, together anyway. So you'll hear the, um, Tony Sukalis interview and that'll just be the end of the pod. So consider this me saying, have a safe and happy weekend. Here is Tony Sukalis. All right. We now welcome on Alabama beat writer, Tony Sukalis. Uh, joins us for the from the Alabama Rivals site, so a uh, I guess sister site, whatever you want to call it. I'm new to the whole Rivals thing, so still get uh-huh. that. Um, going to talk some Alabama football. This is the first installment of uh, this season preview that I'm sure has never been replicated or ever be done again, content wise, where you talk to an opposing beat writer of it, uh, one on the team you cover schedule. But anyway, I appreciate the time, man. How you doing? I'm doing well. Just getting through uh, SEC media days, man. It's uh, it's been a whirlwind. Uh, this summer seems to just have flown by. Oh, absolutely. And uh, it's it's good that we have uh, you know certainty uh, with football to talk about. Not going where this time last year it was kind of like, well, I don't think there will be any football to talk about. So it's nice uh, not having to worry about if there's going to be a season, and then once you get there, cancellations every week. So I'm uh, I'm fired up about that, and I'm sure I was, I'm not at media days anymore. Um, as I live in the DFW area, I kind of do this remotely with a marketing day job. But uh, I'm sure that was cool to be at again, uh, just kind of seeing everything return to some sense of normalcy. Yeah, it, it definitely was cool. I mean, look, we didn't get to do it last year. So it's, last time we did it was 2019. And like, I think half the coaches in the SEC, you know, um, weren't there the last time we went there. You know what I mean? You, you have a bunch of new faces. Uh, um you know, it, it is just kind of nice to see everyone in person. You know, we've seen a lot of these Zoom calls, but it's just really nice to, you know, be there in person and it, shoot, also just see your fellow reporters and just kind of the whole, you know, pomp and circumstance of, of the event. Now, there wasn't fans, and that's always one of the more fun things about that event is, is kind of the fans in the lobby. And uh, you still saw some of the super fans. They were kind of pushed, you know, farther back. They, they weren't allowed in the lobby, but you could see them. I think the painted Auburn Tiger dog was there, and uh, so was the Alabama fan with the ring on his head. But um, So you had some of the super fans. But it wasn't the same kind of atmosphere, you know, that it's been in, in recent years. But it was nice to be there. Oh, yeah, no doubt. And you may have just given us the most important tidbit of the time you're on uh, You're on this podcast. I'm glad Ring Guy made it back. I was worried about that when they were putting the fans somewhere else. I'm glad Ring Guy was uh, out in full force. I had some boots on the ground there, but I couldn't get a straight answer about him. So I, I'm very glad to hear that uh, he was back at media day. So uh, I guess just let's, no better place to start than quarterback um, for Alabama because, you know, it's been interesting. You go from Tua – to this kid that 
most people didn't think would hold off Bryce Young, but then became about as dynamic as anyone in the country. And Mac Jones, you talk about a kid that's you know paid his dues for their better cliche. But for the first time in what, I guess since Tua was a freshman, um, Alabama will have a young guy at quarterback, presumably. Uh, I guess just what's kind of the feeling around Bryce Young in the Alabama program. I mentioned there's a decent bit of confidence, but, you know, for a guy that hasn't, I guess, done it on the field yet, I imagine there'd be a little bit of trepidation. Yeah, it's the first time, I think, and now I'm, I'm really trying to rack my brain because I, I don't want to be wrong here, but I think it's the first time that we've had a real, someone that hasn't started a game in his, in his Alabama career really just be named the starter without a competition uh, heading into the season. And that just shows you Alabama's confidence I mean, under Saban sorry you know so that's the first time that, that situation has happened um under Nick Saban because there's always been a, a competition before um you know there wasn't one last year but keep in mind Mac Jones started four games uh in replacement of, of Tua so it, it's kind of weird that um that situation but I think it just speaks to the confidence of what Alabama thinks of, of Bryce Young and how confident they are in him and look he was the number one quarterback in the 2020 class uh, number two overall player and rivals so uh, you know obviously this kid has a lot of talent um, it's really hard to judge him based on what last year was because he only got you know a limited amount of snaps they were all in mop-up duty and you know you're coming in you're handing the ball off twice and you're throwing on third and long it, it's not a you know a situation that usually benefits the quarterback and I think there were some times as a young quarterback too that he might have been forcing plays to try to to, you know, get noticed or, or make a play, you know, because you only have so many reps. And so I, I just think it's, you kind of almost got to forget last season, not really pay attention to it. Um, he showed a lot of promise during the 8A game, the spring game for Alabama. And uh, I think Bryce Young is, is the kind of the, a dynamic quarterback. He's, he's different than Mac Jones, but he'd be better for this offense if you think about it. Um, Alabama's replacing three starters from last year's Joe Moore, Joe Moore award-winning line. Um, they might need a guy that can kind of scramble and, and make some more plays and make something out of nothing, especially early in the season. And, and Bryce Young's a guy that can do that. But he's also a guy that can beat you with his arm. And um, so, you know, I don't think he should be pigeonholed into this running quarterback, you know, kind of label or anything like that. He's a guy that can beat you with his feet. But, you know, his preference is to use his arm. And um, I'm expecting some big things. I'm expecting some growing pains, obviously, as a, as a first-time starter. But – I do think that, you know, he's going to put together a really nice season. You hit on something a second ago that I was kind of wanting to ask next. It's like, you're right. It is different to where even when Alabama's had a younger quarterback in the past, there's been some sort of competition or someone pushing him. And like you mentioned, that's not really the case. It's just kind of his team. And like, it would almost feel similar. Like you said, if you had had like a solid four games of Bryce Jones this last year, but all you got was kind of limited mop up duty. And it's kind of like, it's your time now. It reminds me a little bit of Matt Corral going from 2018 to 2019. Now, granted, that, uh, that kind of got derailed by Rich Rodriguez trying to be, uh, you know, Pat White, Steve Slayton type of deal, which shockingly did not work mm -hmm. um, four games into that 2019 season. But it's, it's kind of strange because that's not usually the case, uh, particularly at Alabama. Like, I guess what does the quarterback depth chart look behind, like, behind him? Should he – Let's just say second game, he tweaks an ankle or something and has to miss a couple of quarters. Like, what does it look like behind him? That's where it gets interesting. Look, um, there seems to be a big gap between Bryce and, and Paul Tyson right now. And, you know, 
I don't know, maybe confidence or, you know, it's definitely Bryce Young's definitely the guy. Paul Tyson is a four-star quarterback. He's actually the great grandson of uh, Bear Bryant. Uh, so it's kind of a, a neat tie there, but he's a guy more in the lines of, of Mac Jones. Uh, so a pocket passer, he's big, you know, you know, Bryce Young is not, is not, you know, a very big quarterback, but Paul Tyson, I think he's six, five. Um, so he's got that, you know, that big arm and more of your traditional pocket passer. Um, if it was in week two, I would say definitely Paul Tyson. Um, it would be definitely the guy that would come in, no, no questions asked. They also brought in a Rivals 100 quarterback in Jalen Milrow. Here's where it gets interesting. A lot of people are high on Jalen Milrow as well, and he's more similar to Bryce Young. And so I think that that gets interesting maybe. You know, let's say they run an offense that's really predicated around Bryce Young, and in week 10, instead of week two, uh, Bryce gets injured. I think at that point, maybe you do kind of look at J Jalen Milrow if he's ready. Um, if only for the fact that maybe he's more similar, maybe you can fit him into the offense. A lot of that's dependent, though. You know, I think that um, I think at that point it'd be maybe less about fit and more about who's ready to come into a game. And I think you still might give the nod to Paul Tyson. I, Paul Tyson is a good quarterback in his own right, and I think he's you know. He's pretty familiar with the situation, especially after watching Mac Jones wait his turn and, and knowing what can happen if, like you said, somebody gets injured. So um, Paul Tyson, you know, in, in that event, I think it surprised some people. But at the moment, it, it, it really is Bryce's team. And I also think that that's going to be great for his confidence as well. Because when you look at, you know, he doesn't necessarily have that person breathing down his neck to the point where he can't make a mistake or he's, he's too nervous back there. It's very much his team. And I think that, that should translate to confidence on the field. That's a great point that I hadn't really thought about, right? Like the fact that he doesn't have someone pushing him and he's young at that age, like he's not worried about making a mistake and ended up getting benched on the sidelines. And I mean, hell, forget the youth part of it. Like I'm not even, I, I, I shouldn't, I shouldn't speak to something I don't know, but like when Tua was pushing Jalen Hurts, whether that was in his head or something or not, you are just naturally a little tighter when someone's behind you pushing you to whereas I feel like that would be actually particularly effective for a talented young kid to where it's just like, this is your team. Like, you know, just kind of go. I'm sure there'll be a couple freshman mistakes early on. But the great part about Alabama in particular is you've got the pieces around you to compensate should you make a mistake. Uh, kind of starting at receiver. And I know they lost a decent bit from a year ago. And it kind of feels like this is it, – it's weird. Like, if, if, you know, most teams have quarterbacks, it's their offense. Like, if there's such thing as their receiving core, the line of guys the last half decade, it now kind of feels like it's John Mechie's receiving core. I know they added a guy in the transfer portal. What's the receiving core after Mechie kind of look like? And uh, not that there would be any doubt. I don't think there would be at all. I mean, they just kind of continue to produce receivers. But how much aid do you think that will give a young quarterback? Yeah, I mean, Bryce should have plenty of talent to work with. Uh, look, Alabama fans will, will tell you that uh, Alabama brought in four – you know, rivals 100 recruits uh, at receiver. Um, you know, they got Ja'Cory Brooks, Ajay Hall, uh, Jojo Earl, and Christian Leary. I mean, you got a nice – Leary and Earl are kind of more of those slot guys, those fast, shifty guys. And then you've got uh, Ajay Hall, who kind of, you know, kind of reminds me a little bit of Jerry Judy, just with his playmaking ability. And, and Ja'Cory Brooks, probably that same kind of mold as well. Um, but I think the most important person they brought in is, is Jamison Williams, um, who's a transfer from Ohio State. He's a talented guy. I think he just didn't want to play behind, you know, two first-round picks 
uh, probably at Ohio State. So he wanted a, a situation where maybe he could have a bigger role in the offense. And I really think it's going to be key. And, you know, I, I mentioned those freshmen, but when you look back, Nick Saban doesn't like to really go so young at wide receiver. I mean, you look at Jerry Judy, you know, he didn't start his freshman year. And, you know, he's probably a more talented um, receiver than, you know, than an Ardarius Stewart, let's say. But, you know, he didn't get that, that you know, that kind of start. I think that might be the case where, like, there's no knock against Ajit Hall or Ja'Cory Brooks or, you know, JoJo Earl, Christian Leary. But I think Nick Saban's going to side with the veterans. So when you look at that group, you've got Slade Bolden, you've got John Mechie, uh, you've got uh, uh, – um, well, I can't think of his name, but um, – uh, but, but anyways, you, you, you've got uh, you got Trayshawn Holden. Um, so you, you've got a, you got a ton of, of names. Um, and, and so – but you don't necessarily have that guy that can blow the top off of a defense. And um, I think Jamison Williams gives you that. And I think you're going to need a guy that can just kind of go vertical like that to kind of open up John Mechie and, and Slade Bolden. Um, so I, I think that that's really important. Um, in terms of just opening up the offense. So if you're asking me, like, you know, in, in terms of, like, who's the person to watch out for, it's definitely Jamison Williams. And Javon Baker was the name I was, like, searching for. I couldn't think of his name. But that's another uh, a big-time name that they have as well. It's okay. When I was asking you the question, I couldn't think of James's name either. It was, it's still July. We're still – Yeah. <laughs> still so July. Javon Baker. And he's a big part of the offense, too. I mean, uh, that's why I was, like, kind of stumbling on it. But, yeah. So, I mean, like, like I just named you, what, like, seven, eight people? Um, it's just a matter of finding those right pieces. And I, I really think if you ask me that the, the, the three that they're going to use to start off with will probably be Mechie, Bolden, and Williams. That's, a, that's an experienced unit that kind of, they all have something to offer. Um, and I think having Williams as one of those three will allow the other two who maybe, you know, it's not like Mechie's slow, but he's not the same kind of fast as Waddle was. And I think, you know, having that burner will help kind of open up his game as well. Yeah, and it's a good point you brought up, particularly about Saban not wanting to go young, because even his guy is as talented as Mechie, Mechie, I still think he had, what, like four catches as a true freshman, and then you see him in, you know, in 2020 and was like, whoa, like, who is this dude? Like, he doesn't prefer to do that, and he hasn't had to in the past. And so, I guess kind of piggybacking off of that, you know, I don't know what you made of the whole – you know, it started when Tua came out, and they. I think the when he went to Miami and the whole coordinator thing, I think was kind of a disaster. They didn't like the way he was operating in Miami. Did not look anything like the dude I watched for two years at Alabama. They just let him do the same thing. To me, it was more of a fit thing, and the coordinator kind of being incompetent. But I say that to say, you kind of saw it with Tua a little bit too, to where there was a what's it going to be like when he doesn't have the best receivers on the field, you know, 12, 13 games a year. And while that receiving core is talented this year, I mean, the whole Devonta Smith, Jerry, Judy, Henry Ruggs thing just was kind of stupid at times how talented they were. Slight drop off as it may. Do you think that will affect Young at all? There being maybe just a slight drop off in talent at receiver. I think, you know, to be honest with you, if, if I had to be worried about one aspect, it's going to be the offensive line. I, I think that the receivers will be there because also I, I think somebody that doesn't get talked about a, a lot about is uh, Jaleel Billingsley, who's a tight end, who is going to be a real playmaker tight end at that receiver position. So that's another target that he has. And as, as a young uh, quarterback, um, you know, a lot of times you can lean on your tight end. So I think that, that kind of may, might fit him. And Jaleel Billingsley is a guy that can, you know, um, 
maybe not be Kyle Pitts, but like in that role of a guy that, you know, can be a, a main option, it would not super surprise me if he's in Alabama's top three receivers, maybe even top two receivers. Uh, so the, the, there's options there. For me, it's the offensive line. And when you look at it, um, look, you had the Outland winner, the Remington Trophy winner, and another draft pick in uh, uh, Deontay Brown. So you're losing those three. That was a hell of an offensive line. And, you know, you look at Arkansas head coach uh, Sam Pittman, he said that that was the best thing about Alabama. He, you know, outside of, uh, you know, he, he didn't go with Devontae Smith or Mac Jones or Najee Harris. He said it was all about the line. I think he's got a point. So um, that's going to be the – if anything's going to take away from Bryce Young, I think it might just – especially really when things are gelling, uh, how is he going to handle maybe having more pressure than what Mac had uh, last year? Yeah, that's a great point, and that's kind of where I was going next, where they do – you know, they have three offensive line spots up for grabs. Of course, as Alabama does in their 2021 signing class, what I believe they had the top two tackles, the number one center, and, like, the number two guard. But as you know – and it's different with the elite guys that come out of high school, I guess, from the offensive line. But if there's ever a position in college football that's incredibly difficult to plug and play, it's the offensive line just from a sheer weight and a brute strength perspective. The, the Having a year or 15 months in a college strength program makes a world of difference to, I would say, about 98% of the offensive linemen that come out of a high school class in a given year, maybe even beyond that. And so – uh, two, two of those kids are Fort Worth kids, kind of in my neck of the woods these yeah. days. And then the I heard the third guy's name is escaping me right now. Uh, the, the J.C. Latham is the, the 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 prize, I guess, of that bunch of in terms of rankings. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so I guess what I'd throw at you is like, how do you see the offensive line shaking out, and what chance do you give any of those three freshmen to play? Um, I say play start. Um, you know, when Alabama opens it up week one, how do you think the offensive line shakes out? Because with the young quarterback, that's important. And one of the biggest rarities of uh, SEC media day history, uh, Nick Saban gave us a, a glimpse at the depth chart unprompted. I mean, you talk about go. some of the weird things that happened at uh, SEC media days this week. Nick Saban naming a, basically naming a starter on the offensive line was, especially at a position that, you know, wasn't necessarily – set in stone. I thought that, that was one of the things that really took me back. Uh, you know, look, so left tackle is going to be Evan Neal. Um, according to Nick Saban, left guard is probably going to be Javian Cohen, a, uh, you know, a highly rated, uh, he's a sophomore this year. He's a freshman last year. He played a little bit. Um, so he's a, he's a nice guy at that guard position. Um, the center position is probably going to take care of itself because Chris Owens came in for Landon Dickerson. Uh, during the playoff last year. And I think, you know, he's coming back for that, you know, um, sixth season as that super senior kind of thing. So um, he'll be the, the center there. Then you return your right guard at Emil Echior. And so now you've got like four spots. I think one of those, you know, some of the, the question mark was Saban did some big favors by filling in one of those question marks. And now we're really, you know, if you do the math, you're really just looking at right tackle. Um, and there's a few options. Um, you know, Tommy Brockermeyer is one of those uh, Fort Worth kids you were talking about. J.C. Latham's one of those guys. Um, Alabama's got a, a big guy, uh, Damian George, who's six seven. I mean, uh, they, Alabama's got a few people that are six seven. Um, uh, Tommy Brown's another one. Kendall Randolph. Um, so one of those guys, you know, will win that that right tackle job. I kind of think it might be J.C. Latham. That guy is crazy good um you know he's a top he's a five-star player only been playing offensive line the last he started playing as a junior in high school um and so his potential is just 
off out the roof, you know, you know, through the ceiling. Um, so I think he might be the guy that, that, that develops into that role. I really like him at that right tackle spot. And you've kind of seen Alabama not be afraid to put a freshman in there, especially if it's just one. I, you know, some people thought, oh, maybe they'll use two freshmen on the line. That's a lot to ask. Like you were saying, is it's kind of hard to pick it up. Um, on top of all the physical a- aspects, is just learning the the playbook, learning the the line shifts and and stuff. So, um, I could see one freshman playing. If it is, I, I kind of lean towards J.C. Latham. So maybe put him at that right tackle spot, and then you've got, you know, two five stars bookending a you know a, a really strong interior as well. And you could have another special line. It's just a matter of how fast that gels. Uh, you know, you can put the best talent together because talent's never been an issue for Alabama. It's really just more about how quickly can they gel together as a unit? And, you know, will that be in time to maybe avoid some early hiccups against Miami or Florida or, you know, one of the early teams, depending on how long they can kind of shoot, maybe Ole Miss, uh, how long they can, you know, how long it takes them to get things kind of perfect and, and well running in years past and one of the advantages Alabama has over pretty much every other program in the country Sam's like three is not only are they most of the time better than you at most of the positions on the field they're also a lot deeper but at least from the sounds of it sounds like they may not have that same offensive line debt so if things were to kind of go awry offensively would it like I guess the, the predominant cause, at least on paper, may seem like maybe because they had an offensive line injury or two and just didn't really have the eight, ninth guy that they sometimes have. But do you think that you think depth would be an issue at all? Oh, no. I, I think it's the opposite. I think they actually have a lot of depth. It's just inexperience. You know what I'm saying? So I guess it's kind of in a situation where if things were going to go wrong, they're going to have to go wrong early. You know what I'm saying? So maybe somebody catches them early when they don't have things figured out. Cause you, you got to think that things can fall apart a lot quicker. If you don't have a good offensive line, maybe you can get into a situation where Bryce Young has been still kind of early as a quarterback. And if he's facing a lot of pressure early, maybe he makes some mistakes that he wouldn't have made at the end of the season. Um, so I think, yeah, if you're going to hit Alabama, you probably want to play him a little bit earlier just because things like the offensive line, are going to take some time to iron out. And, and, and I say that, but, you know, who knows? By the time they play Miami, this thing might be, you know, a, a full running machine. Um, but, no, in terms of depth, they have plenty of depth. I mean, they, they, you know, you plug in one of those five-star kids if you need to, or there's plenty of experience uh, across the line. Or plenty of, I guess, um, veteran play, like, you know, like returning players that are talented. Not plenty of experience, but, you know, there, there's a lot of, people ready to kind of step into a role if called upon. Kind of the last thing offensively from a uh, big picture perspective, one of the most impressive things about this run Alabama's had is not only the fact that they've kept up this sustained success over what's been well over a decade now, it's the fact that they've done it with an incredible amount of staff turnover. I mean, how Lane Kiffin, the guy coaching Ole Miss right now, being one of them. And uh, what's been crazy about it is not only they had staff turnover and kept it up, particularly on the offensive side of the ball, Saban's opened up his own like coaching rehab clinic where you go clean up your image, learn some stuff, and then go get another head coaching job. The latest candidate in this is Bill O'Brien, which I think is still a pretty smart football mind, a pretty good offensive mind, but he entered that like that level of the internet where you're just the dumbest asshole alive because you made a couple of dumb decisions and then it just kind of caterpillars and uh, the internet now claims you know nothing about football. I still think he's a pretty good football coach. I mean, how the Houston Texans won the division however many times in a row uh, Burns is a Titans fan. But, like, I guess what I'm getting at is that's still a hell of a name to have as your offensive coordinator. What 
difference will you see in the Alabama offense this year and how drastic, drastic of a philosophical shift? Yeah, I mean, look, for Alabama, uh, fortunately, Bill O'Brien can't trade away John Mechie, you know? <laughs> so um, I don't think you have to, to worry about that. Aspect. But the things that Bill O'Brien got in trouble for are, weren't really on the field problems. He was a great, like you said, a great offensive mind. Um, as far as the offense, I, I think, you know, he's a guy that's done it with different styles of quarterbacks. I think he's probably going to try to put together an offense that works for Bryce Young. I mean, look, you, you got to make it work for your quarterback. Um, and when you say that, you look at a guy that can run. I'm not, I'm not saying that it's going to be uh, – uh, yeah, I'm not saying it's going to be, you know, just a, uh, you know, run option. or It's, it's, it's going to be kind of the same stuff that they were doing with Mac. I think it was just, you know, a case of – I think, you know, you're, you're going to maybe utilize Bryce's feet a little bit more. Or, um, but I don't think it's going to be drastically different. I think, you know, you're just going to find what works. Um, and, and like you said, Bill O'Brien's been, you know, pretty, pretty good about being able to do that in the past. For sure. Kind of transitioning to the uh, defensive side of the football. It doesn't turn a lot defensively. What would you kind of say, I guess, would be their biggest strength or, and weakness on the defensive side of the ball, just kind of heading into yeah, so when you look at the defensive side of the ball, um, you, you, there's no replacing Patrick Sertan. He was the best cornerback in college football last year. So that's, that's really tough. But other than that, you know, Alabama loses a guy at each level. So they lose their sacks leader in, in Christian Barmore, their leading tackler in Dylan Moses, and then obviously a hell of a defensive back in Patrick Sertan. Other than that, though, they return everyone. And they also brought in Tennessee's leading tackler in, in Henry Tuatoa. So that kind of, you would say, maybe fits. Um, I think you really need to find an inside pass rush presence that you had with Christian Barmore. And that's kind of hard to find. And I think a lot of teams need that. But um, if you're looking for the, the thing you really need to replace, I know Patrick Sertan was great, but um, it's just so hard to find that guy that can provide pass rush up the middle. Uh, Christian Barmore could do that. Alabama has some people eye on. So, um, they've also got DJ Dale, who's kind of been more of a kind of run clogger. Um, so they've got a lot of experience up front. I think if there's one weakness, I would say um, it's probably that inside pass rush. They got to find that their strength. On the other hand, man, it's the outside pass rush because I don't think you can find a better duo in the SEC, possibly the nation, than Will Anderson and, and Chris Allen. I, th I think that that you know, boy, good luck trying to stop that because uh, I think Will Anderson's just going to keep on getting better, and then Chris Allen led the SEC in tackles for loss. So um, it's going to be pretty tough on opposing on opposing offenses. So. In your opinion, just whether it be your subscribers or just the Alabama fan base at large, what is Pete Golding's approval rating? Because I found that at, you know, for a team that uh, won the national title last year, I found that as an interesting subplot, to say the least. Yeah, Golding gets a rough time of it. And, and like, look, I, I don't think it's deserved. I, I think that, you know, he probably gets a harder time than, than the mistakes that he has made. Um, Alabama led the SEC in, in, in you know, points allowed per game last season. So it cannot be that bad. Um, you know, were there times where I think you look at the Ole Miss game, you look at the Florida game and sure, you know, there are times they couldn't get stops, but um, I, for the most part, I think a lot of teams would love to have Pete Golding. And really what I think is that when you look at this season, this is the year to really judge Pete Golding. Cause I think he's going to have maybe the best unit in college football, if not the second best unit. I mean, like, you, what is it, Alabama or Georgia? I think, you know, just ask your preference of 
what, which defense you, you like more. So um, we'll see. I think Alabama is going to have to lean on this year's defense um, it, more so like the way it leaned on its offense last year. And I think, you know, Pete Golding is going to be able to put it all together. When you talk to Pete Golding, right, it's, like, it's not like the guy is clueless about football. In fact, he's a great football mind. I mean, it, when you, it's a pleasure to hear the guy talk about football because he'll just break things down. And you're like, holy crap, this is why, uh, this is why Nick Saban hired him. It's, he's not some, like, bumbling idiot there just, like, throwing stuff against the wall. Um, I, if anything, I think his problem in the past has maybe been too complex for the players that he had at his disposal and maybe putting together packages or, or schemes that, you know, maybe some of the younger players couldn't really execute on the field. And, you know, that is part of coaching is, is being able to kind of translate that, that knowledge onto the field. But I think he's got the players to do it now. And, you know, I, I don't think scheming was the problem. So, um, he should be able to put it all together. If he doesn't, then I think maybe some of the, you know, criticism will be deserved. But at, at the moment, I, I'm kind of, I'm betting on him, I guess. Yeah, that's a great point you made too about how they're going to need to lean on him because there are more question marks on the offensive side of the football than there are on defense for sure. And so like, I'm, like it's funny, I did the same thing last year. I think I was talking to Brett Hudson. It's like every, like, like everything is so consistent and so like, like, pristine from a depth standpoint from Alabama's perspective it's like you have to learn every question is like well how could it go wrong type of thing and so I guess like I guess what I'm getting at is like if Alabama does not meet whatever expectations as this year and is short of the playoff and the defense isn't up to par like that smells like a prime scapegoat staff change scenario with like is that something worth monitoring yeah it'd be really hard to imagine a situation where Alabama's defense is not at least just really good I mean you know um, we're talking about one of the deepest units, you know, in the nation. Um, there's some things like, you know, can they, can they establish an inside pass rush? Can they replace uh, Christian Barmore? Um, that, that's, you know, a little bit difficult. But even if they don't do that, you've got, you know, Will Anderson and, and, and Chris Allen coming off the edge. And you've got a pretty experienced secondary as well. So it's it's and then you've got you know Henry Tuatoa and Christian Harris in the middle of that defense. So it's going to be really hard for, to to mess it up, and that's why I really don't think that Pete Golding's going to. But yeah, if, if if he puts out a stinker with this defense, then he'll certainly be on the hot seat because I mean, like you know, there's so much talent, and I know it sounds stupid, you know, and you know everyone can say this, but it seems like you know I could coach the defense, and you know we we'd be okay. Just like you know, there's just so much talent there. Uh, um, so I think with his defensive mind and the, just the, the immense talent at his disposal, um, I'm expecting big things. Do you call him Nick or Coach Saban? I call him Nick, but uh, I was the one that asked that question because I'm so tired of that debate. You know, I, I don't, there's nothing wrong with calling him Coach Saban or uh, Coach or Overlord Saban. Or, you know, uh, I think somebody just called him Saban last year um he doesn't care and I you know I think everyone that covers the beat knows that he doesn't care um but I'm glad that he said that he didn't care because I think it kind of tells some of these Alabama fans it's it's, it's you know look it's not a sign of disrespect if you call him Nick he, he's not my coach I, I'm not going out there on third and long and, and catching the ball you, you know uh, um so my job is to talk with him and to get information from him and then to translate that back to the uh to the audience, you know, that's, that's your job as a, as a reporter. Um, and, and Nick, coach Nick, <laughs> Nick, Nick, he knows that. 
And um, I don't think he really cares. I think he, he knows the place of a journalist um, and he's not going to get offended um, by whatever you call him. I, mean, I think if you called him a, 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 you know, a bad name or you made fun of him, yeah, of course he's going to get offended. But look, I, I think, you know, it's a professional setting. He knows our role as reporters and he, he knows where we're, what, what we're doing. And I think he just understands that a lot more than maybe the fans do. Um, but it's not a disrespect if anyone calls him Nick. Um, I don't think anyone that calls him Nick is, is meaning it as a disrespect. It's not trying to be, you know, they're not trying to, you know, be the cool kid or anything. It's just a matter of, uh, it's a professional setting. I mean, you know, I basically work with Nick. You know, we, we have different jobs. His is a lot more important uh, and a lot more people care about his job than mine, but we still work on the same plane. And in that press conference room, you know, we both have our role to do and we both do it. So that's how that works. Yeah, you said that way better than I could. I Honestly, it was the most 2021 thing ever. Like when this came up earlier in the week, I was like, how in the world is this a thing? I've never called any coach I covered a coach, and no one's given a shit either. Like unless, unless Lane Kiffin starts telling me to hit a lap or to like go run a gasser or something, I'm probably just going to stick with Lane. Like I, I can't believe that was a thing. And I know it was like a publicity – like that was such clearly like a stage publicity thing with Deion Sanders because he knows the reporter. I know that Nick's us. Like we, I know we know each other pretty well. Like he knows the reporter. Yeah, he Deion knew what he was doing. But, of yeah. course, you know – everyone has to zag when the common thing is to zig or whatever in this day and age or whatever. But it was just funny, like seeing people on the internet, uh, just be like, yeah, like it's a sign of disrespect. It's like, what the hell are you talking about? Like, like you said, if you want to call him coach, fine. Yeah. yeah. Other than like the occasional, like local TV guy or whatever, like no one gets offended at the fact that his name's Nick. Cause he doesn't coach us. Like that, that's never been a thing until 2021 summer. I mean, look, first of all, yeah, I'm not going to be all Johnny journalism and say like, oh, if you call him coach, you know, you're, you're a joker. No, if you want to come, I've called him coach before. Like it, it, like it, sometimes it comes out. I mean, like it's comfortable. It's easy to say. It's like, hey, coach. He has a show literally called Hey Coach. So it's easy to say if that's your style, like you're not less of a journalist. It's, it's so stupid. It's a greeting. But like when you talk about the disrespect, I mean, Nick is his name and he was named after his dad. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, these are, like he's proud of his name. <laughs> you, you know what I'm saying? Um, we're, we're not calling him something bad or derogatory or, you know, it's not like you're like, hey, champ. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> What's up, uh, Like, How's the offense? His name's Nick. He doesn't call me, you know, reporter number three or like, you know, like, uh, like, so, I, you know, I, I just think that uh, I think it's just a big even address. And sometimes it's just like, hey, good morning, question. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's, it's such a minute thing in, our, in the whole process of, of whether or not it does not matter. It's like it matters the least amount of, of things, you know, uh, out of anything in that news conference. The fact that you call him coach or Nick or anything, it matters the least probably of anything that happens in that room. Yeah, you're exactly right. I got a good laugh out of it. You might be onto something there. Uh, I might go with the condescending like moniker. I might start calling people champ and chief and see how long it takes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Start calling Lane Kiffin chief. <laughs> What's up, chief? Um, four hours you get out of here. There's the, the the other kind of Alabama ripple waves this week was the fact that uh, Saban was at some high school deal here in Texas. Uh, talking about the whole name, image, and likeness thing with Bryce Young and said, you know, he's approaching a million dollars. Saban was just dropping nuggets all over the place this week. Um, what, just kind of your thoughts on that and, like, 
you know, as we enter this kind of wild west thing of the name, image, and likeness, because there is no like market standard yet. And these deals just kind of keep appearing out of loosely based, I guess, social media following and then everyone's best guess. Like my whole thing with this has been the whole time is like, one, there's going to be a market correction. And two, there's going to be someone that figures out how to do this better than everyone else or find some sort of loophole, particularly with it being unregulated. Like, I'm asking you a totally unfair question, but Alabama would be the most likely culprit to do it. Like, have you seen, like, the seeds or the tea leaves of that? Or has it just kind of been everyone flying by the seam of their pants at Alabama, much like everywhere else in the country? Because you ask someone that works in compliance at Ole Miss, and it's like, yeah, like, I think. Like, it just seems no one knows. Like, how has that gone so far? Alabama, like they do with literally everything, is super 100% prepared and as prepared as you can be. But even Nick Saban said, you know, um, that he really can't comment too much about NIL, you know, during SEC media days, he, he said he couldn't comment because he doesn't know. I mean, like nobody knows and he's not going to pretend like he knows how this is going to work out. But uh, I think you can guarantee that Alabama is going to be right up there with the most prepared programs like they always are. I mean, like that's, that's the secret to his success is he's literally like prepared for everything. And so um, like the pandemic, they, they rolled through that, you know? Uh, so this is just going to be another case of that. And, you know, they'll roll with the punches. If, if, if something, if it starts turning this way, they'll shift and pivot and, and kind of take advantage of it that way. You know, I mean, um, I think he's already done a really good job of, on the recruiting end by mentioning that his quarterback <laughs> is nearing seven figures without even playing a game. I'm sure, you know, if I'm a young quarterback, I want to hear that, uh, that I can come into Alabama and potentially you know, earn a million dollars by the start of my sophomore year. Boy, that sounds nice. So uh, I'm sure that that was, uh, that wasn't an accident. He definitely wanted that to be out there. And then for people to know that the earning power that an Alabama quarterback can get. And I think really, when you look at the, with the big programs like that, um, that's going to be the case at a place like Alabama. The whole Lane Kiffin, Nick Saban dynamic is funny to me because like, obviously I think they do, respect one another and whatever you want to use the term loosely like each other despite being drastically different personalities but one of the things that you figured out early on kind of covering the program and particularly while I was still there full time was one Kiffin definitely is grateful for the opportunity he had at Alabama he's definitely respects Nick Saban but the above the fold kind of uh trying to put it like the the, the, the public respect he shows, like with that aside, I do think there's much more of a tenacity to beat Nick Saban that lives within Kiffin than maybe he lets along on the surface. And it almost becomes amusing sometimes because Nick's not really on social media and Kiffin will love to like playfully rib him or whatever and just kind of go outside the box every now and again. Like, and I know Alabama press conferences are different because Saban is just kind of a whole different animal than, you know, other guys as well. But like, how often does Lane Kiffin come up in Nick Saban's life throughout the course of a season outside of Ole Miss week? I mean, like, if somebody brings it up to him, maybe. But right. he's, I don't think he's spending too much time thinking about Lane. Yeah. Uh, but I do think they have a, a healthy respect for each other. And they're totally different styles. And I think you talk about, like, Lane's drive to beat Nick. I, I don't think that's necessarily – first of all, everyone has a drive to beat everyone. But I don't think – that drive to beat Nick is necessarily like, Oh man, I want to get one over my old boss. I think Lane wants to prove that doing it Nick's way is not the only way to do it. You know, I think it's important for him to beat him because he can show that like, Hey, you, you don't have to be so rigid. You can, you can have a little fun and still win. And we'll see if he's able to do that. But I, I think that that's, 
probably important. I mean, I'm, I'm obviously speaking for Lane. I'm not him, but, um, it, you know, I think that that's probably important to him that, to show Nick and to show college football that, hey, you can win this way. I, I can be myself and, and still win. I don't have to try to completely copy Nick Saban. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. Um, and what's it like? So from Alabama's perspective, like I imagine that the Ole Miss game was a bit of a footnote. And I got the games in Tuscaloosa this year. I still don't think Ole Miss has near enough talent on the defensive side of the football to actually like really like that game, in my opinion, will not be a nail biter per se going into the fourth quarter. Because at the same time, in that game in Oxford last year, yes, Ole Miss was in it. And yes, they played way better than everyone thought they would offensively. And Alabama was exposed a little defensively but you knew Ole Miss was not getting a stop. Like there was never a moment watching that game that I thought Ole Miss was actually going to win the game. It was just like, holy shit, they keep answering that type of thing. So like, what, like how did that kind of sit amongst program people, fan base, whatever, you know, I guess it's a footnote when you win the national title, but like the week after, what was that like the next week in Tuscaloosa? I think it kind of woke Alabama up and then, you know, you look at how they performed after that, you know, I think things got a lot better, but, um, or this, you know, slowly, you know, at, at least, but they, things got better. Um, but I think, you know, we were just talking about Pete Golding. I think, you know, that's the game people circle. It's like, you know, Ole Miss couldn't get a stop, but man, it took Alabama quite a while to get a stop themselves. And it was just kind of a basketball game. And you know, Alabama fans are, are not used to that. You know, they're not used to giving up so many points before, you know, offense was the thing you know offense is still kind of new to Alabama fans you know it's always been the defense you know most of the early titles were won on defense so they don't like uh, seeing those those big time you know when the, the opponents is scoring 40 plus points they don't love that so um, it is something that's left a sour taste in their mouth and I fully like I know Ole Miss lost you know the two biggest two of their biggest player makers and Yaboa and like in Elijah Moore, of course. Uh, but uh, when you uh, look at, you know, Lane Kiffin's ability to kind of stir something up, I'm sure he's going to have something planned for that game against Alabama. And I'm really high on Matt Corral. I think he's going to be super great. Um, I voted for him as the uh, first team, all SEC quarterback, you know, on, on the media thing. And I think he's going to be a first round pick. Um he was one of the guys that, you know, when I saw him, I thought, you know, he. Did, I'm glad he's now getting his hype because I, I was kind of surprised that he wasn't getting that first round hype instantaneously. He just if he if he can kind of control the the turnover problem, I think he's one of the best cornerbacks in the in the nation. Absolutely. Last thing I have for you, to let you get out of here. I've made like I think every Alabama reporter do this every year. I've done this segment on the podcast. Give me. Once, like, if Alabama does not meet expectations this year, it's because why? And we'll go that first, and then after that, if they just absolutely steamroll their way to another national title, what happened? So if they don't do it, it's going to be complacency. That's what always happens with Alabama. I mean, there's no – you can't look at this roster and say, well, you know, there's too much talent. They're talented even in their weaknesses. I think most teams would take what Alabama has as a weakness at the moment they probably trade. So I think it's going to be a case of, you know, do they, you know, do they lose a game that they shouldn't have lost? And then who knows? I mean, maybe they lose. Let's just say that they play a tough game against Ole Miss, barely get by against Ole Miss, come in battered against Texas A&M and 
let's just say Texas A&M has a special season and, and that one loss from Alabama means that Texas A&M represents the West in the SEC championship game. That's the kind of thing that could really leave Alabama on the outside looking in, you know, something like that. I don't think Alabama under really any circumstances other than like mass injuries, and you can say that about any team, is going to, you know, just completely fall apart this season. I just don't think that that's going to happen. But there could be some complacency. They might lose a game that they shouldn't. Um, but that's pretty much happened in most Alabama seasons with, with Nick Saban. There's usually that one wake-up game. So if that game happens, depending on where it happens in the season, if it happens in the playoffs, if they get, you know, overly uh, complacent at that moment, then obviously they'd be done. But it could also happen, like I just said, with a team that gets hot. Um, and, and maybe that one loss comes back to bite them. But uh, I don't see them really losing – I don't see them losing two regular season games. If they lose two games, probably one's going to happen in the regular season. The other one's going to happen um, in, in the postseason. But, it, you know, I, I can't really see this team losing more than twice. And, and then if they do well, I think it's just, you know, things go right. I think if, if things if they're going to steamroll someone, it's because Bryce Young was able to step in effortlessly uh, and kind of keep that offense humming because this defense is going to be special. So if Bryce can kind of replicate – I mean, he's a different quarterback than Mac, but if he can put up those kind of numbers – um, they'll, they'll kill everyone because um, if this offense can be anywhere close to what last year's offense was, the defense is going to be a lot better in my opinion. Tony Sukalis, I really appreciate the time, man. This was great stuff. Incredible insight. Um, I really appreciate you taking a minute out of your day to come on the pod and uh, maybe we'll do this again game week. Yeah, man, definitely. You just hit me up anytime. Check him out. Bama Insider, Alabama Rivals Network. Be well, dude. I'll talk to you soon.